Hi, this is Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, and today we'll be mapping the autoimmune protocol diet on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, and healing foods that have been used in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in clinical care. Everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, award-winning public speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and world-renowned health expert, Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, PhD, aka the Paleo Mom, believes the key to reversing the current epidemics of chronic disease is scientific literacy. She creates educational resources to help people regain their health through diet and lifestyle choices informed by the most current evidence-based scientific research. Dr. Sarah, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm such a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm so glad, and I can't wait to get all geeky with the autoimmune paleo protocol diet. Can you start us out by just helping us to understand what AIP or the autoimmune protocol diet is? Yeah, I really think of it as a collection of best practices for diet and lifestyle to help the immune system regulate itself, to support gut health, to support hormone regulation, and ideally through those support tissue healing and ideally reduced disease activity, all in the context of somebody who has a genetic predisposition to an immune system that is going to go on overdrive um, based on a really minimal stimulus. Mm, I love how you put that. And it really does break bring us into the center of the functional nutrition matrix, understanding why someone would consider this. Is there a point in working with somebody where you might consider other elimination diets prior to going on an AIP diet? Or would you go right from zero or sad to AIP? I think the the biggest consideration is a person's starting point against their symptom severity mm-hmm. and and what they're ready for. So right. there might be a symptom severity that would really indicate that the AIP and jumping all in is going to be the expedited pathway to healing. 
But at the same time, that person may be not ready to give up bagels <laughs> and you have to right. start with like, okay. So if we're going to take an iterative approach, I like to sort of look at AIP first steps as removing the most likely biggest offenders, which would be gluten, dairy, and soy, while focusing on the nutrient density aspect. So really looking at supplying the, the full range of essential and non-essential nutrients from foods, which means a very vegetable-focused diet, organ, meat, and seafood, sort of rounding out with fruits. And even in that phase to make things more accessible, you could look at what typically are considered reintroduction foods because the AIP is also a protocol that respects bioindividuality and has an entire phase of the, the protocol that is dedicated to self-exploration, challenging eliminated foods, and trying to identify individual triggers. So you can even play some pretty relaxed with those foods, right? Nuts, seeds, eggs, things that would typically be more likely to be successfully reintroduced anyways. So focus on just the, the habit aspect of it. And then also, I mean, I think lifestyle is so often overlooked in terms of its necessity for healing and especially for gut health, hormone health, um, immune regulation. And so I almost say like at the same time as we're working on like trying to figure out is this a person who wants to buy liver at their local farmer's market or are we right. just going to do encapsulate liver with this person? Let's also work on sleep. I mean, sleep, the sleep stress management. Right. right. And so I think that when it comes to like, do you dive right in or do you take an iterative approach? We're really looking at this person as an individual and what is going to be what is going to be that balance between affecting positive sustainable change and also making sure this person is seeing a improvement and ideally resolution of symptoms on a time scale that's going to keep them motivated to continue on their health journey. What you're saying is so important. I'm here nodding my head over and over again because a diet, a, a therapeutic diet can be absolutely therapeutic. It can also become a trigger for a lot of poor behaviors or mm -hmm. bad behaviors or confusion. And what you're speaking into is how we really need to pace this to the needs of the individual. And you gave us a great starting point, no gluten, no dairy, no soy. If we were to go to the full spectrum, either in an iterative fashion or to begin with, can you walk us through what that would exclude? You you gave us some beautiful inclusions sure. that we all come back to. So the exclusions are all based on foods that are sort of known to contain compounds that stimulate the immune system or trigger inflammation that are known to contribute to gut dysbiosis or directly to increased intestinal permeability or foods that are directly related to endocrine interaction in a negative way. So things like, you know, sh sugars triggering a insulin response would be a really obvious example, but we're also looking yep. at things that might impact estrogen or that might trigger cortisol response. So that full range of eliminations includes all grains, all dairy, all legumes, all nuts and seeds, all vegetables of the nightshade family, which includes tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, those contain some incredibly inflammatory compounds, despite 
also containing some redeeming nutritional value. Um, But they are a very common trigger food for for autoimmune disease. I think I already mentioned eggs. I'm like trying to count them on my fingers now. Um, (laughs) And yeah, so in eggs and then under seeds that also excludes some things like coffee and chocolate. So there's some, some foods under seeds that maybe aren't completely obvious until you start breaking down a food list. And there are some herbs too, right? So under herbs and spices, those are basically still right eliminating spices that fall under the nightshade family. So that would be things like chilies, paprika, and a lot of spice blends include nightshade spices, right? So think of, you know, chilies is a pretty wide range of, of different spices. Right. And then we also are still excluding seeds. And that would include even like berry-based spices that are ground because the way those berry structures are is they're sort of different than eating a strawberry or a blackberry. Those seeds typically pass through our digestive tract intact. That's actually how berries in the wild propagate. They get planted in delicious manure. And so so we don't think about those seeds necessarily as being problematic. But if you are grinding a seed, you are basically creating an environment where the potentially inflammatory compounds in that seed are more easily uh, digested and absorbed. So that's what we do with spices because that's that's where all the flavor is. So we're also eliminating seed-based spices or any sort of berry-based spice like black peppercorn would be a really good example where that seed is being ground up as as part mm. of how we're consuming that spice. Now, in terms of spices, it can be really surprising which ones become trigger foods for different people. And probably a lot of the listeners are familiar with doing food sensitivity panels and how often something like peppercorn or nutmeg or cinnamon might come up on those food sensitivity panels. So it might not be that foreign of a concept, but we basically look at the AIP eliminations as a, we're eliminating basically all of the most likely trigger foods. And we do that for, I mean, it really needs to be at least a month. And the reason for that is when you do an elimination and challenge protocol, you want to be challenging in this window where you still have active circulating memory cells that can show that you have, well, they'll basically trigger an exaggerated response because your regulatory cells die off faster than your memory cells. So you Mm -hmm. want to catch that window where the challenge is going to show an exaggerated reaction so that it becomes really identifiable as a trigger food. So that window is anywhere between about four weeks and about six months. Usually I, I try not to put a too, too strict of a time frame on it. So I say like, let's wait until you're feeling better enough that you'll notice if you feel really terrible when you consume a yep. trigger food. But it doesn't mean that you have to wait until like labs are normal and that person's like an Olympian athlete, right? Like it doesn't have to be, <laughs> doesn't have to be that level. So, so four weeks is kind of a minimum. So you're looking specifically for that window where regulatory cells that are helping to restrain a food sensitivity reaction have died off, but you still have circulating memory cells. They haven't gone yet to the spleen to hang out for for the rest of your life. Once they're in the spleen, actually, that's a really cool thing because that's where if gut health is really good and the immune system is regulated, that's where those foods might be tolerated again. So I think it's also helpful to emphasize to clients that 
The Automune Protocol is a toolkit, and it really is designed to help you as an individual understand your body, your triggers, what you need to be optimally healthy, what you tolerate, and in what circumstances you might tolerate those foods. So very commonly, we tolerate suboptimal foods much better when we're on vacation because our stress levels are much lower, right? right. So You're sleeping more. Exactly. So like understanding that, that, that's part of this discovery process that the autoimmune protocol helps walk people through. It's really understanding our own bodies at that level of detail so that we can make informed choices for the rest of our lives. And so that doesn't mean that we're like doomed to follow this like really strict version of the autoimmune right. protocol forever. Um, the idea is that it's a self-discovery process. Mm, I love everything you're saying. We're definitely going to link to all of your resources in the show notes so people can read more, do more, look at the protocol. I want to talk to you a little bit about inside and outside, what's coming in and what yeah. we're doing then to heal the body at the same time. So this is a mistake I see patients on their own make often where they're doing these healing diets. They're not stopping. They're eliminating more and more foods, but they're not working with somebody to help them with the internal healing. Healing. So it's like we're maybe not rubbing salt in the wound, but we're not helping the wound to heal. How do you see AIP working in tandem with other therapeutic work? Oh, it's 100% compatible. So we yes. actually are often encouraging autoimmune disease sufferers who, you know, the problem with the experience of getting a diagnosis for autoimmune disease oh is gosh. it is it so can hard. take decades yes. um, and it can make us very cynical about medical intervention in general. Yes. And so, you know, I actually spend a lot of time encouraging people to seek out functional and integrative medicine practitioners or to work with an AIP certified coach, somebody who can really help look at root cause. So we're looking yes. at uh, hormone regulation, right? We're looking at HPA axis dysfunction, for example, super, super common, looking at severe nutritional deficiencies that may need supplementation yes. to address. We're looking at potential infections, persistent infections that might be something like Epstein-Barr, or it might be a parasite, or it might be a severe form of gut dysbiosis that requires treatment. And so generally, you know, my because I tend to educate people more than work with clients, you know, I always say like, Okay, don't do not bang your head against the wall for more than three months. If if you are not seeing a difference just from lifestyle and diet interventions in three months, there is something else going on, and you need to find the expert to dig deeper. And it's not a failure. It doesn't mean you didn't AIP hard enough. Um, right. It's it's what we're what we're looking at is informed and judicious use of medical intervention and alternative medicine, and really looking at using all of the best tools available to us to affect healing. Yeah. I always like to say that diet and lifestyle modification are a yes and. It's yeah, not necessarily it. on its own. And also, you know, there's not one root. Like you said, it's roots. And I like to always identify, as you did in the beginning, Dr. Sarah, I call it three roots, many branches. All the signs, symptoms, and diagnoses are branches. And those three roots are, are genes, those genetic mm -hmm. predispositions, digestion, and inflammation, which you've spoken into beautifully, really diving deep into what's happening in the inflammatory process there. And then when we're doing this work, you did mention that foods might be able to be tolerated again, which I love. And then also a mistake I see people make is that they're sometimes doing therapeutic diets for too long of a period of time, thereby 
introducing deficiencies that aren't being addressed. Can you talk about those two things, how we understand if we're tolerating again and how we ensure that we're not staying too restricted for too long? Because I think this is a trip a lot of people go down. One of the things that really makes the autoimmune protocol stand out in the sort of collection of therapeutic diets available is that nutrient sufficiency is actually a key tenet of the autoimmune protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, if so they're doing it right, if right? If you're doing like- it right, you're <laughs> eating a wider variety of foods than you were before, yes. and you are more than meeting your nutritional needs, not just of essential nutrients, but non-essential nutrients as well. So we look at you know consuming an abundance of uh, phytonutrients, poly phenols, right? Non-essential nutrients, but still incredibly important for health or actually actually getting enough fiber, which very, you know, 10, only 10% of Americans do, right? right. We look at uh, non-essential nutrients like the long chain omega-3 fats or other health promoting fats like conjugated linoleic acid. We consider conditionally essential amino acids, right? So we're really looking at meeting nutritional needs in this very comprehensive way. And I would actually argue, so one of the things that that I see is this combination of protocols. So I'm going to take the eliminations of the AIP and the eliminations of GAPS or SCD or Candida diet, right. and I'm going to combine these and I'm going to do low FODMAP, right? And I'm, um, and then I'm going to do, then I'm going to go carnivore AIP. And I, I, my argument is that's, that you are missing the most fundamental tenet of the autoimmune protocol, which is nutrient sufficiency. Um, And I would argue that a limited food implementation of the autoimmune protocol does not count as the autoimmune protocol. That's so important, Dr. Sarah. And I just want to highlight what you're saying for everybody listening, that the AIP diet, the autoimmune protocol diet is not just about what's excluded. It's about what's included. It's more so about what's included. yeah, Yeah. I love that. That's so important. So that means we are getting the nutrients we need. Somebody could stay on it long-term and they could also test and track by reintroducing. Absolutely. So yeah, that was the part of your question that I didn't actually answer, which is like, how do you determine a food that you tolerate versus a trigger food? And it really comes down to doing methodical reintroductions. So we can break the autoimmune protocol into three phases. Uh, The elimination phase, which would be traditionally called like strict AIP. I'm using air quotes that nobody can see. Um, (laughs) And then a, a reintroduction phase, which is a classic, right? Elimination and challenge protocol following, you know, very standard protocols that an allergist would use to test for reactions to those foods, but we expand the symptom list. And so we look at not just symptoms of allergy, but GI distress or skin changes or sort of neurological symptoms like a headache. We look at any symptom of the autoimmune condition um, that that person has been dealing with potentially being magnified. So we, we take a more comprehensive approach to defining what a reaction is. And we test sort of every four to seven days. So we give it a, a you know enough space for a delayed reaction because we know allergies are fast, but intolerances and sensitivities aren't necessarily yep. fast reactions. Um, And we take this very methodical approach to reintroductions. And the difference between a trigger food, it's like a trigger food is going to cause symptoms that are really noticeable, right? And even though it might make us cry a little bit on the inside, (laughs) if that was a food we really wanted to work for us, um, you know, they're, they're really sort of, you know, it's, it's, you can't talk your way out of acknowledging that reaction. A tolerate food would be something where, 
you maybe don't feel your best. You kind of have some amorphous symptom. And I, I also refer to them as sort of like slow burn foods. So if I'm mm-hmm. eating that food every day, I can see things start to unravel. But, you know, if I pull back and I eat that food maybe once a week or every other week, save it for special occasions, you know, I can kind of recover from it. So I don't... That's me and eggs. Um, <laughs> that's actually me and nightshades now. I mean, mm. nine years later, it took me a long time to get to that place with nightshades. Once a week, no problem. Every day, ooh, yeah, no, things really just start to unravel. And and so those are also foods that if we're not getting enough sleep or we're stressed, we are yes. probably going to start tipping that balance into more of a, an obvious trigger food. And so understanding, you know, I think most of us who use the AIP as a as a toolkit in this way will come up with a collection of foods that we sort of save for special occasions. So we know that once in a while it's going to be okay. We're not going to have a big reaction. It's not going to trigger an autoimmune flare. But we know on a daily basis, it's, it's, you know, definitely, definitely not working for us at that, that frequency of consumption. And that ends up being our uh, wiggle room food. So it ends up being the, the collection of foods that, you know, really help us navigate society, navigate the potluck or the restaurant while we're traveling or the, you know, dinner at our in-laws where we don't want to yes. get into a huge conversation about why I don't eat 17,000 foods. And so those end up being the foods that really can just actually make the third phase of the autoimmune protocol, the maintenance phase, which is where we've kind of gone through that self-discovery and we have a really good sense of what are our best choices day to day and where our wiggle room is. And then we just live there. And it's discovering those wiggle room foods that can really make the AIP a sustainable, lifelong lifestyle. Mm, So brilliant, Dr. Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. I had so much fun listening to you. I think my neck hurts from (laughs) nodding my head so much. And I really appreciate all your work. Again, please, everybody check out the show notes. We'll point to everything that Sarah has done, including AIP training for coaches. And again, Dr. Sarah, thank you for your work and for joining us here. Oh, thank you so much. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 